From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, June 20th. I'm Marco Werman. Mubarak is still on life support as Egypt waits for official election results. The ousted leader still has plenty of supporters in Cairo. We love Mubarak. We love Mubarak. Mubarak is good man, good president. And later, Colombia's Edmar Castaneda rocks out on his harp. You know, I've tried to play with my left hand bass lines and with my right hand playing the melody, harmonies, but, you know, grooving. That's ahead after the news. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The high drama in Egypt continues. Today, authorities delayed the announcement of official results from this weekend's presidential vote. That announcement was supposed to happen tomorrow. Now, there's no timetable. Both candidates in the runoff are claiming victory, and today's delay is certain to raise tensions in a nation that's already on edge. Egypt's ousted president, Hosni Mubarak, remains in critical condition at a hospital in Cairo. The 84-year-old is reportedly on life support, and people are again protesting in Cairo's Tahrir Square. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Cairo. As the numbers of demonstrators in Tahrir Square swelled into the tens of thousands late last night, the news broke on Egyptian state TV. Mubarak had suffered a stroke. He had to be treated with a defibrillator and then moved from the Torah prison to a Cairo military hospital. The ex-president was said to be clinically dead and on life support. People soon gathered outside the hospital. Some came to show their support for the man who ruled over Egypt with an iron fist for 30 years. We love Mubarak. We love Mubarak. Mubarak is good man, good president. I don't rec- recognize the revolution or the people who are here or, I mean, in the Tahrir Square. And uh, I'm supporting this man till the end. Till the end. Things got tense when arguments broke out between Mubarak's supporters and those who denounced the former dictator as a thief and criminal. A young dental student named Ahmed said he stopped by out of curiosity. Actually, I hear them in the news that he's clinically dead. Uh, and I, I saw a lot of people uh, uh, stepping by from the cars and gathering around the hospital. So I wanted to figure out, are they going to want to see him or to... to I, I want to figure out what's going on. When Ahmed heard the statement from Egypt's ruling generals last night that said Mubarak was not actually clinically dead but in stable condition, he said it made him think that the opposite was probably true. They said that he's not dead and this is just a, a rumor. 
and it's not true, but I think he's dead. There wasn't much more clarity on Mubarak's condition today. The Muslim Brotherhood issued a statement that said reports about his medical condition were based on rumors and they're part of a plot by the military to distract people's attention from the presidential election. Speaking with Egyptians on the street in Cairo, many say they're suspicious of this latest round of stories about Mubarak's health. At this point, some say they just don't know what to believe. That includes Mona El-Ghazar. We heard, we heard that he's in the hospital. But God knows. I think he left somewhere outside. Maybe he fled the country, maybe he's dead already, or perhaps Mubarak was allowed to move from his prison cell to a hospital room where he can be more comfortable, says Ihab Hamdi. I don't believe Mubarak's health is in danger, Hamdi says. These are just rumors. They are taking very good care of him right now. What people really want, he goes on to say, is for Mubarak to get the death sentence, not just life in prison. But several people I speak with say they're torn between empathy and disdain for the ex-president. A woman who gives her name as Fatima says she feels sorry for Mubarak. Still, she says this is the man who was in charge of everything when all these people were killed during the revolution. Maybe, she says, he deserves to suffer at the end of his life. Yet another version of Mubarak's situation emerged today from one of his lawyers. He told the New York Times that the former president actually slipped and fell in a prison bathroom. Mubarak was moved to the hospital where he was treated, the lawyer said, and now he is in stable condition. These details are not likely to persuade many Egyptians one way or the other. They're far more concerned about the condition of their nation than the health of their former dictator. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Police in Britain say they're poised to arrest WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange should he decide to leave the embassy of Ecuador in London. Assange sought refuge inside the embassy yesterday and asked Ecuador for asylum. In so doing, police say the WikiLeaks founder broke the terms of his bail. Assange has been battling extradition from Britain to Sweden, where he's wanted for questioning in a sexual assault case. But he says it's not the Swedish authorities he wants to avoid. John Quigley is a professor at Ohio State's Moritz College of Law. So, Professor, a reality check here for us. Assange is clearly frightened that he'll end up in the United States. Is there any basis for that fear? Well, there is a possibility that uh, he could wind up in the United States. If he is sent to Sweden, it's conceivable that the Swedish government could be asked by the United States for uh, extradition and that Sweden might conceivably uh, agree to that request. Has the United States ever asked any country for Assange to be handed over? Uh, It has not asked for Assange to be handed over. As far as we know, there's not any charge against Assange in the United States. And why have they not uh, asked for him to be handed over? Why have charges not come up? Well, apparently the federal authorities are investigating to uh, try to get more evidence that would connect Assange to the receipt of the information from Bradley Manning, who is under prosecution for giving the material to WikiLeaks. But uh, so long as the government can't find sufficient evidence that Assange was involved in in that transmission, that is, that he could be charged with aiding and abetting the offense of Manning, uh, it's difficult for the federal government to find a charge against him. 
Well, uh, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein stated that Assange was violating the Espionage Act of 1917. Uh, can you tell us what that act is and whether you think that Assange is, in fact, uh, as uh, the senator says, violating that act? Well, the, the act is rather unclear. Uh, this is Title 18 of the U.S. Code. It says anyone who has unauthorized possession of material relating to the national defense, which the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation who communicates that information is subject to prosecution. So it would need to be shown not only that he transmitted the information, but that he had reason to believe that it would be used to the injury of the United States. So I I think there's some question as to whether uh, the Espionage Act would work, and and the federal authorities have not charged uh, Assange with that offense. Professor, do you find it at all curious that the rhetoric uh, uh, coming out of Washington about Assange doesn't really match the kind of pursuit of him? Well, I think the the federal authorities are being a bit careful. Uh, They want to be sure that they have something that would be solid, uh, in particular for extradition purposes. If it appears that you're prosecuting for political purposes, then the other state is not obliged to extradite. So that an extradition request potentially that might be made by the United States to Sweden would be much more solid if it looked to be strong in general legal terms and didn't appear to be done out of you know political revenge, let's say. Mm. If Assange manages to get asylum to Ecuador, do you think the story is over? I mean, is he essentially protected from extradition and prosecution? Does he sip cocktails on the beach forever? I don't think it will ever quite be over. I mean, even if he does succeed in getting the Ecuador government to grant asylum, and even if he does succeed then in getting himself out of the U.K. physically to Ecuador, the United States would presumably continue to put some pressure on on Ecuador, and it's not clear how that would play out. I mean, Ecuador is reliant on the United States in many ways economically, and they're Uh, there's quite a bit of leverage that the United States potentially has over Ecuador. John Quigley, professor at Ohio State's Moritz College of Law. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. The Rio Plus 20 Summit on Sustainable Development officially opened today in Brazil with a warning from United Nations Chief Ban Ki-moon. He said progress on issues like poverty and our planet's environmental problems has been too slow and that words must translate into action now. Almost 200 countries are taking part in the summit, and the draft agreement on the table right now is already falling short of Ban's call to action, and critics are already slamming it as weak and even pathetic. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, is with me in the studios here in Boston. Are are the critics off base, Peter? Is his draft agreement weak and pathetic? Well, it's almost 50,000 words, so (laughs) I I, I can't say I've done more than scratch the surface of it, but um, from what I've seen and from what I've seen in uh, in the news reports we've been following, the people we've been talking with, weak is certainly fair. Pathetic, that's uh, much more subjective, but um, there's very little coming out of this, as far as we can see, that has any teeth to it, that has any real substance in terms of committing any of the, the world's countries, major or minor, to doing anything in particular. Remind us of the original goal of this uh, Rio Plus 20 summit. What was supposed to be accomplished? Well, it was supposed to to really refocus the world's attention on the challenges of developing, that is, 
essentially bringing the world's bottom billion people out of poverty um, and maintaining the standard of living for the, the six billion above that um, in a sustainable way, in a way that won't overtax the world's resources. Sustainable meaning that you're not digging into your natural capital. You're not eroding the natural infrastructure that underlies all of our economic activity. It was supposed to refocus our attention on that in a way sort of that the original Rio conference 20 years ago did do. That was the known as the Earth Summit. Mm. Um, and that really did provide s- some pretty substantial progress. I mean, the, the, the Kyoto Treaty came out of that. The Biodiversity Treaty came out of that. The Global Environment Fund. A lot of things that people are still fighting over, but they actually made real progress. So it was supposed to be something along those lines. I mean, Ban Ki-moon, the, the uh, UN Secretary General, said this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity. It's not shaping up that way. You know, you'd think that after numerous conferences on sustainable development and climate change and the environment, and of course they're all connected, the delegates from governments and NGOs and the the activists would have figured out by now how to make these summits more efficient. With with all the urgency around these subjects, what's the problem? Well, I'm not sure they can be more efficient. I mean, it's really a, a kind of a sclerotic process. It comes down to a lowest common denominator that's dictated largely by the narrow interests and the short-term problems of individual countries. And it's a consensus process. So everybody has to agree or nothing gets done. Um, And obviously, we have massive economic challenges around the world. At their root, a lot of them may actually have important environmental uh, elements to them, but they're very difficult to see. They're very difficult to tease out. And right now, we've got huge immediate things that we need to deal with that seem irrelevant to this and much more important in the short term. So, Peter, with very little actually accomplished at these conferences, is the conference idea played out? Is it time to try something else? It's probably time to try something else, um, although there's a benefit to having this in the global agenda, in the news, having people like us talk about it uh, here and, and around the world, and having at least to have heads of state, heads of government, high ministers parade in and at the very least wave the flag and say, yes, this is something we're committed to. They are fundamentally vital ideas about the future of the planet. But as a venue for real progress, I think we're having to look elsewhere. The World's Environment Editor, Peter Thompson. Thanks so much. Thanks, Marco. Still to come on the world, covering hard news around the globe, one cartoon panel at a time. That's on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Spain said today it doesn't need a bailout, at least not a full-blown one. But the country still has big problems, including unemployment verging on 25 percent. It's double that for young Spanish workers. So some young city dwellers are chucking it all and heading for the countryside. The World's Jerry Haddon caught up with two young families taking the plunge, the first in Mont Blanc, Spain. When a 20-something-year-old Spanish salesman named Max lost his job a couple years back, he didn't freak out or even get depressed. I found out I was getting fired, he says, and I was happy about it. I couldn't let my boss know that, you know, start celebrating right in front of him. I realized that our life in Barcelona, with all the noise and pollution, was a hostile environment for a kid. That kid is four-year-old Sauk. Max and his partner Susana, a former social worker, also have a baby. 
They're what people here are calling neo-rurales, or the new rural folk. Max and Susanna traveled for a few months in Latin America. Then they took over an organic farm here in the Spanish countryside. How hard could it be, they thought. The first thing you realize is that life in the countryside is hard, says Max. It's a lot of work. People imagine kicking back in a hammock, but you can't. You've got fences to fix, animals to feed. There are so many tiny things to do. And learn, he says, even simple things like staking the tomato plant so they don't fall over. When you're from the city, you just don't know these things. Max says local farmers were always willing to offer advice, even if they regarded them as a bit weird. City folk come to the country with strange ideas, Max says, like it's wonderful to bathe in a freezing river. The locals think we're nuts. They have hot water in their homes and big plasma screen TVs. We city folk tend to romanticize the countryside. A couple of hours away in the mountains of Aragon, another young family is giving country life a go. Marta and Xavi and their two kids. On a recent afternoon, the kids get home from their one-room schoolhouse. Marta heats up pasta on a solar stove and serves it in their yurt. There's no electricity out here. Marta and Xavi are building a hay bale guesthouse for tourists. The project is about sustainability and self-sufficiency. Unlike Max and Susana, Marta and Xavi didn't lose their jobs to Europe's ongoing financial crisis. They quit on purpose. I worked in a bank, Marta says. Xavi owned a construction company. Banking and construction the two sectors that have brought Spain's economy to its knees. Marta says they had front-row seats to the impending disaster. I started thinking, she says, how can it be that all this fictitious money dominates our lives? I'm referring to the markets. This is money that no one ever actually touches. It's all moving around via computers, she says. We have to get our feet back on the earth. So with a dream of living in the mountains, they came here. They're also learning as they go. And one thing they're learning is, it all costs money. That's why this whole back-to-the-land movement can't really be called a movement. If you're unemployed in the city, you can't just move to the country with no savings. What would you eat? Where would you sleep? Which brings us back to Max and Susanna. When they agreed to be interviewed, they were actually packing their bags for Ireland. The owners of the organic farm had decided to come home. Max and Susanna looked around for a new project in Spain, but came up empty. Max says he knows a lot of people with great ideas for ecological farms and tourism, ideas that could even make money. But he says there's so much red tape in Spain that it's impossible. Getting permits can take years. So folks who don't have a lot of money can't survive long enough to get through the process. Max and Susana are going to Ireland to live in a so-called green community. It's affordable, they say. They'll learn English. And one day, they hope, Spanish authorities might make it easier to set up unconventional projects, rural startups, as it were. And then more young people might ditch the cities to give country life a try. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Montblanc, Spain. Sports are always a good way to take one's mind off serious matters like the economic crisis. But no such luck for European soccer fans. They're closely following the Euro 2012 tournament right now. The games are being played in Poland and Ukraine. But even there, the Euro crisis narrative is hard to avoid. The world's William Troop is following the tournament for us. So, William, uh, we're at the halfway point now in uh, Euro 2012. Eight teams are moving on to the exciting knockout stages. Uh, What does the Euro crisis, though, have to do with all of this? 
Well, uh, you have to remember that this is a tournament where nations are represented. Each team represents uh, a country in Europe. And all the big players in the Eurozone crisis are there. Uh, Greece, Germany, France, Spain, Italy. I mean, everybody. And uh, so when you get certain matchups, it's just really hard not to think of what else is going on in the life of these countries. And the big matchup coming up on Friday is Germany against Greece. I mean, it can't get any better than that. Right. I mean, it's incredible. And there's also Italy and Spain involved. This is turning into like the Euro crisis 2012 cup. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it's really hard to avoid that narrative, as you said. Is it different, though, on the soccer field? I mean, does Greece really stand a chance in the knockout round? Uh, let me think about that. No. <laughs> uh, actually, Greece is very much the underdog. They are kind of a feisty team that uh, has the battle really to advance, whereas Germany uh, looks a little bit like they're on cruise control. And uh, like almost every tournament that Germany plays in, uh, the question is, can Germany be stopped? But uh, really, you have to give the Greeks a little more credit than that. They are a disciplined lot mm. uh, out on the field. And that's kind of you know the reverse of stereotypes that are common in Europe right now about Greece and the financial crisis. When Greece takes the field on, in, in a soccer match, they're actually quite efficient. Uh, they have very few chances, and so far they've taken them and scored. So uh, watch out, Germany. So what do the players make of all this? Well, I'll just quote one Greek player who spoke to the press uh, yesterday, and he said, this is bad. You know, we're just players, and uh, we're playing a game we love. And all this hoopla about the euro crisis being injected into this game is just counter to what it's supposed to be about, which is 11 guys out there trying to score a goal. Right. Well, let me put you out on a limb, uh, William, and ask you whether you think the tough economic challenges in some of these countries are, are actually raising the game level on the pitch. Well, actually, they might be. Uh, so far, this tournament has been pretty exciting uh, with a lot of these interesting matchups coming down to the wire where, you know, somebody has to score or they go home. And uh, there have been some surprises soccer-wise. Uh, the Netherlands, a uh, big soccer power in Europe, they went home defeated three times in a row. Mm -hmm. So this tournament is kind of uh, open for anybody to win, though everybody expects the big final to be the two best teams coming into the tournament, which is Germany and Spain, another matchup that has uh, echoes of the Eurozone crisis. Right, so that's the conventional wisdom. Are you hoping for any particular final? What I'm hoping for is surprises. I'm hoping that the, uh, the, the teams that you expect to win don't and that we see kind of an unusual final like uh, Portugal and Italy. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a big Italy fan, so I'm really hoping for Italy to make it to the final. Well, whoever wins, one thing is for sure, they're not going to have to bail anybody out. The world's soccer connoisseur, William Troop, thank you as always. You're welcome. Stay across what's happening in the world and on the world by following the program on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at PRI The World. And my Twitter stream, by the way, is at Marco Werman. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a call to help the millions of people around the globe who fall prey to human trafficking. These people in our time, they are suffering. And these people are dying. So an international body has to do something because they are human like me and you. Combating modern slavery coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Now, here's a top ten list you don't want to be on. It's the annual State Department list of human trafficking worst offenders. That is, countries that aren't doing enough to combat modern forms of slavery. This week, in its annual report on the issue, the Obama administration added Syria to the list. Other nations like Myanmar or Burma were removed. I'm joined by Ambassador Lou DeBaca. He's the U.S. coordinator for human trafficking issues. And Ambassador, what is the headline from this year's trafficking in persons report for you? Well, I think the headline is the notion that even transitional countries can and are fighting slavery. When we see countries like Burma, Egypt, Tunisia are stepping up, even a prosecution in Somalia this year. So I think that what we see is that it doesn't matter whether a country is rich or poor, stable, or coming out of a transition, the fight against modern slavery is something that all governments can and should be doing. Overall, is uh, human trafficking growing? We're looking at numbers now that seem to be between 21 and 27 million people worldwide. There's estimates it's the most people enslaved as a raw number um, in human history. But I think sadly what we're coming to realize is that this doesn't represent a growth in human trafficking. It represents the fact that there's so many people who suffered throughout the years without a response that was helping them. And I think that that's what's heartbreaking is to think about the last 100 years. Most of the countries of the world thought that slavery was over and so we didn't have to work on this. And yet people were suffering in silence. What happens if a country gets on the State Department watch list? I mean, obviously it's embarrassing, but but what actions are taken beyond naming and shaming? Well, we can't o- overstate, you know, naming and shaming. And then there are sanctions that can be applied to those particular countries, targeted sanctions. For instance, we saw the sanctions in the Democratic Republic of Congo last year were targeted towards the military in no small part because you had situations where uh, – marauding soldiers were enslaving entire villages, you know, everything from prostitution to cooks to traveling porters. So in that situation, the sanctions that were put into place were specifically put on for military aid for Mm. the maximum effect. And how did that change things ultimately in uh, DR Congo? I think that what we're seeing is that more and more there are people who are empowered within these governments who had been wanting to make a change, and they use this as one of the ways they do that. We saw that in Burma this year. You know, we lifted the, the trafficking report sanctions in February of this year. They were the first sanctions that the United States lifted against Burma. And it's because the Tiansen government had made it illegal after almost 105 years. They had gotten rid of the law that made it possible for state and local officials to enslave the population for whatever they wanted to. They could, you know, the local mayor could come and force you to work on a plantation. Um, For the first time in in the modern history of Burma, that is now illegal. Uh, Lou Dubaka, at this point, where is the country that your department believes has the biggest problem of sex trafficking? I think that we continue to see, um, especially in India and other parts of South Asia, these brothel districts. I think that those are some of the the worst conditions. But sadly, what we're also seeing is that the same tragedies happen, you know, on the streets of Memphis, on the streets of Washington, D.C. This is something that we can't 
you know, simply look overseas and, and say trafficking and slavery happens over there. It's happening in our own backyards. I need to ask you how much, you know, cases like uh, the notorious case in Colombia when Secret Service agents hired uh, prostitutes there, how much that damages what you're trying to do? Well, I think that what we see is that, you know, the increased attention to the, the situation, and there were some people that were asking what kind of analysis was ever done to see whether those women were adults. Because, of course, the definition of, of trafficking of modern slavery, when you're looking at sex trafficking, there's the idea that it's consensus in the United States and around the world that a child can never fully consent to being involved in prostitution. And so there was, I think, some awareness raised by the instance in Cartagena. But, you know, there's other things that we're seeing as well, and we're certainly looking at the government's uh, procurement policies, personnel policies, etc., to make sure that the taxpayer dollar is not inadvertently going uh, in any way to support this type of enslavement. Mm. Ambassador, I'd like to bring another voice into the conversation. Azazet Habtezki Kidoni is an Eritrean nun. Uh, Sister Aziza, as she's called, has led efforts to call attention to human trafficking in Sinai in Egypt, including sexual slavery and the torture of hundreds of African asylum seekers. And Sister Aziza, you'll be honored by the State Department this week for your work. Sister Aziza, I'd like to know what your personal connection is to, to this cause you're fighting. Was there a moment or an episode that really alerted you to the problem? A woman who was raped and she had a child and crying, she told me, I am so happy that I can tell what happened to me and to other fellow women and men. Where was she from? She was from Eritrea. And another one, a man, the same thing. I am so happy to tell you that I am alive today because I was wishing that I could die because I didn't want to face uh, what tomorrow and to be tortured, he wants to hang him, himself. But at that moment, a new uh, group came and they saved his life. When other three boys that they were with him, they passed away under the torture. And when I interviewed him, he said, I'm so happy I could tell about what happened to my friends. This gave me a strength. I have to tell what they are telling me. I cannot keep it for myself. Sister Aziza, you, you said you wanted to get these stories of suffering and slavery out there for the whole world to hear. But what can you do as an activist in, in this area of human trafficking? What can you do really besides raising awareness? These people in our time, they are suffering. And these people are dying. So an international body has to do something because they are human like me and you. Sister Aziza and Ambassador Lou DeBaca, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Marco. Thank you. Human trafficking is the kind of subject Joe Sacco might deal with. Joe Sacco is a cartoonist and journalist known for his war reportage in comics form, like Safe Area Garajdi, about the Balkans and footnotes in Gaza. His new book, called Journalism, is a collection of his more recent short-form comics reporting. Sacco takes us to a Bosnian war crimes trial in The Hague, camps for displaced persons from Chechnya, the war in Iraq, and even his homeland, Malta, where no one is putting out a welcome mat for immigrants showing up from sub-Saharan Africa. Joe Sacco... Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. 
you cover so many different stories that we're used to reading about on page one of the newspaper. Um, with your Iraq narrative, your drawings and commentary, it's amazing. They combine to really convey this manic daily pace between tedium and heart-stopping adrenaline for soldiers as they try to suss out enemies never knowing who's who. Now, some written journalism has conveyed that. Why, why do you think that your reporting is so immediate in conveying these ideas? Well, I suppose because it's drawn, uh, you know, people are in the scene right away. I mean, they're, when you're drawing the inside of a Humvee and the reader just looks at that, they're there in the Humvee. They're in the desert. I think we're visual creatures, so the drawing is sort of a intro to unfamiliar place. When you were in Iraq, what is your daily life like there when you're embedded with, with U.S. troops? I mean, is it different from a, you know, a print journalist, for example? Well, I mean, I think I do pretty much what a print journalist does, except I'm thinking visually at the same time. I mean, I'm doing interviews like a print journalist will do, but since I'm traveling, I was traveling around with these Marines, I was taking photographs and things like that, and in my head, sort of setting scenes that I would later draw. I hardly ever do any sketching when I'm in the field because it takes too much time. Really? And, you know, especially when you're in a, in a Humvee bumping around in the desert, I mean, it's kind of hard to draw. You know, some of the USGIs in your Iraq narrative, I mean, they get profiled in a way that, you know, we never see in, in photographs or, or in documentaries or, or, or in print. Have you gotten any reaction from, from some of these, you know, uh, sergeants who are, are kind of drilling the Iraqi recruits? Uh, none from the sergeants themselves. I mean, some from... Um, in fact, I just visited one in North Carolina, one of the ones that was wounded. And he felt it was a good piece. But, you know, it's interesting talking to him because you realize the things you didn't learn when you were there, the things that the Marines were sort of keeping to themselves. I mean, now he's, he's willing to talk about that sort of thing. And that, that's always very enlightening. Mm. And you begin to see the limitations of being embedded. You include yourself in your reporting. That, that's something that uh, a, a lot of journalists are told not to do. Um, you're, you're usually wearing a hat, your glasses, and standing there taking notes. Why, why do you put yourself in your stories? Well, that's just sort of an, an accidental thing because I, I started out doing autobiographical comics. And when I sort of shifted over to journalism, I kept drawing my character in the field. The fact that you're drawing yourself is like having the pronoun I in front of the reader. But I think this sort of works in my favor because I, I've always had a point of view and I've never wanted to pretend that I'm, I'm objective in that American-style reporting sort of way. I mean, I am sympathetic to certain peoples and it should be clear by who I'm going to see where some of my sympathies lie. But I think my drawn character gives the reader the clue that this isn't an entirely objective account. So, Josaka, what do you hope uh, your comics reporting shows that conventional journalism doesn't? What I'm trying to do mostly is show average people going about their business in very difficult circumstances. I mean, one of the things I have in my, in my favor, because it's such a slow sort of process to draw, I let the, the reporting process itself be slow. I give myself sometimes four weeks, two months, four months to be in, in one particular place. And I can really sort of sink in and sort of see what's going on and get to meet people and get to know them well. And then because it's drawing, spending a lot of time in one place, you can really create an atmosphere by the multiple panel sort of format. Joe Sacco is a cartoonist and a journalist who has covered conflict zones all over the world. His latest book is a collection called Journalism, and it's a great way in to a lot of these news stories. You can see excerpts from it at theworld.org. Joe Sacco, thanks for speaking with us. Great to meet you. Thank you very much. The fictional planet of Tatooine figures in today's GeoQuiz. 
Star Wars fans will remember that Tatooine was the home of future Jedi warrior Luke Skywalker, not to mention the slug-like crime lords called Huts. But did you know there's a place in North Africa that resembles the desert planet Tatooine? In fact, the country we want you to name was where many key Star Wars scenes were filmed. May the Force guide you to the answer, coming up in just a few seconds. So Tatooine is a place you could visit by entering the fantasy world of Star Wars, or if you're Mark Cox, you can actually go there. Mark, you've got some explaining to do. What does it take to actually find Luke Skywalker's home? Well, you need some good uh, map references and GPS and travel across the desert. You'll find uh, Luke Skywalker's home very close to the border of Algeria and Tunisia. Tunisia, that's the answer to our geo-quiz today. You went there with a team of volunteers. Tell us about that. Yes, well, it all started two years ago. We went on a tour in Tunisia of all the Star Wars locations. And it was there when we came across, we went to go and visited Luke Skywalker's home, which is out on the Salt Flats. And we discovered it was in a really bad state of disrepair. And so we decided to kind of go back and repair her because at the time, me and my wife, future wife at the time, decided we'd have a little wedding ceremony there. And after that, we'd thought to ourselves, well, we've had this very special moment here. It's going to disappear. So why don't we all come back? So a few of us decided to go back and save her. And so in the end, we raised money, which um, helped us go back out there and repair the homestead. So you've essentially saved a piece of modern cultural history in Tunisia, but I want to backpedal to something you said a moment ago. You had a wedding ceremony. Did you get married? Yeah, that is correct. So we had all the speech and the ring giving and what have you. Luke Skywalker's home. And at the time, I I had a, a stormtrooper as my best man. So he was there, handed the <laughs> ring across. And You're talking about a Star sorry. Wars stormtrooper, right? A Star Wars stormtrooper, yeah. I had one of our guys on the trip. He brought out a costume of a stormtrooper and... It was awesome. (laughs) You've spent a fair amount of time now working with the locals uh, in really stifling heat to finish this project. What do the locals make of your little mission? Well, no one, none of the Tunisian locals, because they don't have DVD players and they don't have video recorders, you know, similar like we have in our homes. So they don't have that movie feel like we do. So they didn't really care about it. And that's the reason why a lot of it all went in disrepair. And that's how we felt that we had to kind of go out there and do something about it. But I think that might have found us very strange at first. But they understood why we'd done it. And they understood that we was helping the tourism because Tunisia's having a bad time at the moment because they had all their uprising last year with the government. And at this moment in time, they want to get more tourism back. And they can kind of see what we're doing now. Right. So I have to ask you, yeah, since you got married on a fictional planet, where'd you go for your honeymoon? We came back to Earth for our honeymoon. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough space credits to take us and where we wanted to go. We, uh, we all just went back to the local hotel and had a few drinks to celebrate. And uh, the locals made us a cake as well, which was brilliant. When he's not on the fictional planet of Tatooine, Mark Cox lives in Norwich, England. Mark, very good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Oh, well, thank you very much. You can compare Luke Skywalker's Tatooine home and the real-life Tunisian equivalent today at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. That's not just any harp you're listening to. It's an arpa llanera. That's an instrument popular with the cowboys who live and work in the plains of Colombia and Venezuela. The man playing those beautiful chords is no cowboy, though. He's Edmar Castañeda from the Colombian capital, Bogota. For the past few years, Castañeda has lived in New York, immersing himself in the jazz scene there. He's also brought a bit of Colombia into the jazz repertoire. Now Castaneda has a new album out called Double Portion, and he came to our Fraser Studios here at WGBH to chat about his music and play for us. Edmar Castañeda, thank you so much. No, thank you for you guys to invite me. Tell me, first of all, about the instrument you're playing. I mean, generically, we can call this a harp, but you grew up playing el arpa llanera, which is traditional to Colombia. This is not a llanera harp. What is it? No, yes, it's a llanera harp. It's just uh, I make some changes. How many changes? I mean, would you find this oh, in man. a typical village in Colombia? No, <laughs> come on. No, no, I just make a change, a little more modern stuff. And I add some more strings and a new mechanism to tune in the harp. Actually, this harp is made in France. Mm, obviously custom-made. Yeah, this is a custom-made harp. Now, you grew up dancing to a, a style of music called joropo. Yes, and yeah, I started when I was seven. Seven. Also playing the harp? To no, no, actually I started dancing folk music, uh, Janela music with my sister. Mm. And then at 13, that's when I started playing the, the harp. Mm. So the music that you just played for us, how many elements of traditional Joropo music are you bringing in there? I mean, what, what's identifiable still of traditional Colombian music in what you play? Uh, this one, Entre uh, Cuerdas, the one that I just play, it's, uh, I mix you know, a little bit of the improvisation, a little bit of the effects that you use in the traditional music and you know, just the passion of, of my music. Very passionate indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Now, your new CD is called Double Portion. Tell me what you were aiming to do with this, because you do a lot of kind of collaborations on the album with various artists. Yeah, this uh, new album is titled Double Portion because I'm using the classical harp and the Colombian harp. I'm playing duos with piano, so everything is double. It's a double portion for you. On the album, you perform something that I wasn't expecting, Astor Piazzolla's great tango classic, Libertango. It's kind of the quintessential Argentine tango composition. What's your connection between Colombia and uh, Argentina and tango? Uh, I, I met Piazzolla's music with Paquito Rivera, and, and you know that changed my life. I was like, wow, who is this? And I love that piece. So I did a mix with a great uh, mandolina player from Rio Janeiro, Hamilton Delanda. Oh, Hamilton Delanda. We just yeah. did a version of, of that one, mm. harp and strings and mandolina. So you've got Argentina. You've got Colombia, you on harp, and you've got Hamilton de Holanda on mandolin from Brazil. All very out-of-the-ordinary instruments <laughs> and yeah. very international, too. That must have been fun. 
Yeah, no, it was fun, and because each of the guests of the album, they always uh, have their influence of their country very strong, mixing with jazz, so it was great. on your CD really worked for you where you weren't perhaps expecting it to? I mean, it was really fun to play with these three guys, you know. Uh, Gonzalo Rubalca, I've been listening for him. Yeah, fantastic. Actually, Cuban that's one of my, my yeah. biggest influence on what I do, you know. When I was in college, just listening to his left hand. Gonzalo, you know? yeah. Yeah, and I was so honored to play with him and to record and to learn, you know. And uh, it was interesting how do you mix the piano and the harp. It's very difficult to mix those two instruments. But with him was so amazing. He's like a poet and virtuoso. It's like amazing to share double portion or like this traditional tune, Quita Pesares, that is like a old tune in, in, in Janera music. And we just make a different version, crazy version. <laughs> Some of the kind of runs that you do on your harp, I notice that there are some very low notes, almost like a bass guitar. Are you? How, how do you use um, the bass? I voice? change the strings of the traditional harp, and I play as a bass player. You know, I try to play with my left hand bass lines and with my right hand playing the melody harmonies, but you know, grooving. I'll say. <laughs> I've been listening for a lot of bass players, you know, and piano players, never harp. So I always get the influence from that, and from New York, you know. So I always try to do a slap. Influence from New York, you said? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I live in New York, so, you know, that city, you found everything, African to tango to jazz to hot up. I mean, New York has a reputation of being such a gritty jazz city. Uh, when you first got there and you met some of these jazz players, was there some skepticism? Did they take a, a heart player seriously? Uh, in the beginning, after you play, they say, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we get it. You're in. You're in. <laughs> Well, it is such a delight having you here with us, uh, Edmar, and, you know, it's so rare that we get to hear an instrument and, and a player like you. So treat us to something else as we go out. What, what are you going to play for us now? Uh, I'm going to play something that I, that I wrote, um, Colibri, and it's a mix of flamenco with some joropo. Edmar Castaneda, thank you so much. Thank you. see Edmar Castaneda rocking the Arpa Llanera. We have a video and concert dates at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, gatesfoundation.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.